Welcome to Soylent Green. Our 10th and last episode to wrap up our first season is brought to you by Soil Ecology. There's never been a better time to view the world through the lens of soil ecology than at the dawn of the Anthropocene. At Soylent Green, we are committed to using our experience and our voices to raise awareness of the climate change issues facing us and to spotlight the novel solutions employed by researchers, entrepreneurs, and free thinkers. We hope you've been enjoying the podcast so far, and we'd love to hear from you. If you have an idea for an episode or a guest you'd like to nominate, feel free to email us at SoylentGreenPodcast at gmail.com. Also, we would love it if you could please leave us a review on your favorite podcast platform. While we try to maintain free knowledge for all, there is a good deal of time invested into this endeavor, and we are open to donations and support from our listeners. We do have a Patreon and a Buy Me A Coffee account, and we'll include the links in the episode description. In this episode, we'll be joined by Matt Wallenstein, who works in the field of soil ecology, focusing mainly on the microbial aspects. If you've been listening along, you'll have heard our episode with Kelly Wrighton, who gave us a wealth of knowledge on soil microbes already. If you haven't, we highly recommend you go back and check it out. In this episode, we want to dive into some of the other processes undertaken by soil microbes, their relationships with other organisms, especially plants, and their role in regenerative ag. Matt is the chief soil scientist at Syngenta Group and leads the company's global efforts to develop products and services that enhance soil health. He is a soil ecologist who studies how microbes drive nutrient cycling, soil formation and decomposition, and affect crop health and productivity. Before joining Syngenta Group in 2022, Matt was a professor at Colorado State University. In his 15-year career at the university, his latest position was head of the Department of Soil and Crop Sciences. His prior positions were associate and assistant professor in the Department of Ecosystem Science and Sustainability. Matt is a past president of the Soil Ecology Society and co-founder of Grossentia. He is also a recipient of the prestigious National Science Foundation Career Award and a fellow of the Ecological Society of America. He holds a PhD in ecology from Duke University and a bachelor's degree in geosciences from Franklin and Marshall College. Welcome, Matt. Thanks. It's great to be here. Thanks, Matt. Yeah, thanks for coming. First and foremost, we want to thank you personally because you got this podcast off the ground when you were head of the Southern Crop Department. Could you tell us a bit about what it was like to be the head of the Soil and Crop Department? Wow, you bet. And it's awesome to see how the podcast has taken off and a little dream of yours has blossomed into something really cool and special. So yeah, being a department head was an amazing experience. It's really an honor. Being a faculty, you get to exercise a lot of different muscles, your scientific brain, your coaching and mentoring abilities, and taking on an administrative role like department head is a whole nother level of challenges and opportunities, right? Now you're in charge of a pretty complex operation that spans from our core teaching mission to research. And then soil and crop actually is a really unique department in that it has all these other activities. So there's a crop testing program, a soil testing lab, wheat breeding program. So all these really cool programs that I had to learn about, right? And the first thing I did when I took that job was literally take everyone I could out to coffee right, or, or lunch and learn about what they do. Because I didn't come in knowing, really knowing what they did. And hopefully by the time I left, I was able to, to really understand what each person brought to the department and each program and, and what they brought to the community, including growers in the region, including students, of course, and colleagues. And that learning experience of just getting my head around what the department does and what the over 100 people that work within the department, what each of them 
does on a daily basis and what they bring. That was amazing. Yeah, every single professor in the soil and crop department is so kind and warm and welcoming and has always volunteered to lead their students to new opportunities. And I really appreciate that. Yeah, I agree 100%. Yeah, they're amazing people doing amazing work. And each professor that you've interviewed on the podcast and beyond has a whole group of people and every one of them is doing interesting work. True. There's too many people, not enough time to interview them all. There's always more time. <laughs> mm -hmm. Not that old yet. <laughs> <laughs> Did you get any like initiatives started there while you were head of the department? Yeah, there's no doubt I have an entrepreneurial spirit, right? <laughs> and so I'm always spinning up new ideas and whatever organization I'm in, trying to find ways to get some of them off the ground and, and going. And that spans from things big and small, right? So there were things that where we had opportunities to take existing programs and really support them in a way that expanded their abilities. So I mentioned a soil testing lab earlier. We just opened a new soil testing lab down in Denver at our SPUR campus. So that was real exciting. CSU SPUR is an educational collaborative whose doors are open to all. It houses researchers in laboratories and a veterinary clinic. It contains a market, a museum, an art studio, classrooms, a garden, and is an innovation center. Students of all ages can take trips to CSU SPUR to engage in hands-on experiences like veterinary services, water quality lab work, including taking a water sample and looking at it under a microscope, and reconnecting students to their food systems with vertical and rooftop gardens. CSU SPUR also has an equine science center, and if you're interested and want to learn more, you can head on over to csuspur.org. During my time there at the college level, we developed a really ambitious strategic plan. One of the elements of that strategic plan was around regenerative agriculture, which was, again, taking pieces that were already there, but really elevating them to a strategic level and making investments. That's what I love to do is help. And they're not always my ideas, but usually they're sure. ideas from other people. But in that role, I had the ability to help take some of them to fruition. Oh, that's cool. So you're kind of like facilitating them getting their ideas off the ground. Exactly. Yeah. Finding resources to support it, getting the attention of people that can make it happen at higher levels and bringing in outside support as well. Another example is uh, help spin up this Soil Carbon Solutions Center. There's a lot of interest in carbon as a solution to climate change right now in soils. And CSU has some of the world's experts in that. But I helped work with them to build this center and elevate that work, bring all those people together, bring in new resources. They're off and running now. They're doing great. So you mentioned regenerative agriculture. Could you define that for our listeners? Yeah, you bet. And there's lots of different definitions out there. But I think at the end of the day, it's about a set of agricultural practices that lead to enhancing soil health and biodiversity. So it goes beyond what we might think of as sustainable practices, which I think focuses largely on efficiency and adds on how do we actually enhance soils, the things that live in soils and minimize the environmental impacts of agriculture. So for those who have not heard the term regenerative agriculture, there are many different definitions floating around depending on who you ask. According to the Regenerative Agriculture Foundation, it is defined as any practice, process, or management approach that enhances the functioning of the systems on which it relies. This includes core ecosystem cycles such as energy, water, and minerals by enhancing biological function. It also includes improving economic and social systems. Some of those practices include no-till or minimum tilling, increasing soil fertility by application of cover crops, crop rotations, compost, and animal manures. 
restoring the functionality of the soil system by building microbial community through intercrop planting is another method, multi-species cover crops, and borders planted for bee habitat and other beneficial insects. Additionally, regenerative agriculture promotes reintegrating livestock back into food production systems, something that's not common in traditional large-scale farming. Well-managed grazing practices have been shown to stimulate improved plant growth, increase soil carbon deposits, and overall pasture productivity. This is more about like including a bigger picture of the microbes and other things that live in the soil. It doesn't. It also involves people. So mm-hmm. we have to develop farming systems, food production systems in a way that's more equitable and provides ways for lots of people to make a living on the land sustainably and allows for people to produce food in a way that leads to healthier outcomes for everyone. So again, the term regenerative agriculture has gained new levels of visibility in the past couple of years. It spawned books by farmers and filmmakers. There's been features in the New York Times and the Washington Post. And there's at least one full-length film, Kiss the Ground, which was on Netflix. It has become maybe a marketing buzzword into the corporate world with companies like McDonald's, Target, Cargill, Danone, Pepsi, General Mills, and others pledging to use funds to support regenerative practices. The term has even been applied as a modifier to individual food products. In 2019, Applegate Farms, which is a subsidiary of a major meatpacker, Hormel Foods, debuted a line of regenerative sausages. There is also some concern that this new label describes time-honored farming methods that some food producers have long embraced due to preference, tradition, or necessity. Black and indigenous farmers have been practicing this form of agriculture without any specific title or performative acknowledgement for generations. One thing is for sure though, it's not what it's called, it's how you do it. And by implementing regenerative practices that still pollute the environment and harm the majority while the rich get richer, you're not doing anything to help. It just reminded me of Something that I've been wanting to plug for a while. This documentary called The Ants and the Grasshopper. Have you ever heard of it? No. It's really fascinating. I'll put a link in the description later. <laughs> this documentary I'm referring to is called The Ants and the Grasshopper. It's a 2021 documentary about a Malawian woman named Anita who advocates for climate change awareness and gender equality. She ends up traveling to the United States to visit farmers and others to address the issues of race, class, and gender. And she also sought an audience with the U.S. government to impress upon them the importance of accepting climate change, boring one senator, Jeff Merkley of Oregon, to see how our actions, practices, and lifestyle here in the U.S. can affect Malawi and the rest of the world. She illuminates the lives of those she touches and inspires others to see that when we work together, we can lighten the burdensome workload before us. Anita shows others through her actions that class, race, and gender are societal constructions that divide us and prevent progress from being made. It really is a great story, and Anita is a galvanizing force as some of the people she visits start to see things differently and question their role as stewards of the land. Ultimately, people begin to see that we all rely on it and have a responsibility to take care of it by protecting local environments, which also begins with protecting and supporting each other in our communities. Regenerative agriculture is really interesting because It seems to be a win-win for the producer and for the environment because obviously farmers want to enhance the soil, which then produces either a better quality good or higher yields. But what are some of the challenges producers might see 
when they try to implement regenerative agriculture want to move in that direction. Yeah. Some of the practices that fall under the regenerative umbrella can be difficult to implement and they can require an investment in equipment. They can require people to experiment with new ideas. So it can be hard. And in a place like Colorado, for example, where water is pretty scarce, it's not that easy to grow a cover crop because you have to allocate some of your precious water to getting that crop going. And you're spending your good money on seed that you're not going to harvest and be able to sell for cash. So it takes a leap of faith to make that investment in something that may have a longer term payout by improving your soil health, right? And we don't always have the data and the models to be able to provide that confidence yet. That's a continuous process to be able to really refine our ability to predict how those investments are going to pay off for the grower. But the scientific outlook is showing a correlation between these regenerative practices and soil health, correct? Yes, absolutely. So no-till, keeping plants in the ground year-round, so that could be a cover crop, but there's other ways to get at that too. For sure. And there's a strong scientific basis. Like we understand the principles by which those practices in theory and in practice should improve soils. But you use the word soil health. Now we could spend the next three hours just defining (laughs) what that means, right? And I think it's a great term because it invokes something that we can relate to and how we think about our own health. But then you get into the details and you're like, well, how do you measure soil health? And if you improve one of those measures, Does it necessarily lead to specific outcomes? Does it lead to better yield? Does it lead to lower input? Does it lead to better bionutrition in the crops? And those are often nuanced answers where the science is complex. As we mentioned earlier with the term regenerative ag, no one really agrees on the exact definition or enforcement of the term soil health. Buzzwords like these have been thrown around for the last decade or so with no consensus on exactly how they're quantified. If we go by the USDA's Natural Resource Conservation Services definition, or NRCS, we would say that it's continued capacity of soil to function as a vital living ecosystem that sustains plants, animals, and humans while performing five essential functions, water regulation, sustaining plant and animal life, filtering and buffering potential pollutants, cycling nutrients, and providing physical stability and support. And that last one, they're referring to structures, buildings, and such. I think these terms, though, are subjective, depending on who you ask. There are some who think that natural resource management is too restrictive and that we should be able to plow, mine, and extract to no end. And there are also those who don't see the conundrum of climate change as an issue at all and who believe it's just made up nonsense. And there are also those who believe that management, regeneration, and conservation aren't going far enough and that we need to exclude the excessive needs of humanity's lifestyle, especially Western ideals, when considering soil and natural resource management practices. Whatever the case, I think that most people at least imagine that soil health encompasses the provision of a good growth medium for food that is free of pollutants and able to filter water for human consumption. And I'm sure it's different depending on where you're farming, where you're living. Everything is context-specific. Yeah, it depends. (laughs) How is this information getting out to the farmers? Well, the most important way that farmers learn about these things is from their peers, from their neighbors, and from their trusted advisors, right? Because at the end of the day, because everything's local and and context-dependent, you're always looking to see what your neighbors are doing and how it's working for them, right? But, you know, of course, there's also, there's podcasts like this one, right? And there's all kinds of information out there. So we're in a world where there's infinite sources of information and everyone has to kind of sift through that and but there's nothing like the coffee shop. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Let's talk about your work with microbes. 
What is their role in nutrient availability to plants? Well, soils are one of the most incredible habitats on Earth, right? And you can pick up a handful of soil and be holding whole tropical rainforest worth of biodiversity in your hand. And so every time I think about that, it really kind of reminds me why I got into this field in the first place. It's mentally rich and complex. And you not only have this huge diversity of organisms, they're all doing different things. There's millions of ways to make a living in the soil. So that always blows me away. Would you say that microbes are the best entrepreneurs? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, a lot of them are modestly successful. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) No one's out overpowering. There's no one person. Yeah, yeah. There's less of a, a wealth gap in the microbial <laughs> Typically, community. things don't work out for something like that in the, in the natural world, do they? Communist <laughs> microbes. <laughs> yeah. But you mentioned one of the specific things that microbes do is make nutrients available, right? And without microbes, all the nutrients would be tied up in dead organic matter, right? And it's only because we have microbes that are breaking down that organic matter and releasing those nutrients back to plants that we have life on Earth, really. And so it's an amazing natural process, but it's actually not a process. It's thousands and thousands of different biochemical reactions that are taking place because of thousands and thousands of different microbes. But we can kind of collapse all that complexity into some pretty straightforward things like thinking about the rate at which a nutrient becomes available to a plant. And you did some work with Francesca Cotruvo's lab, right? microbes or or what was it specifically? Yeah, well, Francesca Catrufo was one of my closest collaborators, and I've worked on her on many projects over the years. And her focus is more on the soil organic matter cycling. And so we made a great team because I brought more of a microbial perspective to that. One of the things that we did was we developed a framework that really combined our collective expertise called the Microbial Efficiency Matrix Stabilization Framework. Now that's a mouthful. So we called it for short MEMS. And MEMS is basically saying that when you add organic matter to a soil, the degree to which it stabilized depends both on the microbes and on the minerals that are present in the soil. So the microbes take that, let's call it dead leaves, right? Take dead leaves and convert it into other forms of organic matter. They actually ingest those products and they create new microbial biomass. And then that microbial biomass, then the microbes die, and we call that necromass. So the necromass then becomes part of the soil organic matter. But importantly, whether or not that carbon and that organic matter sticks around depends on whether those compounds bind to minerals, ground up rocks in the soil. So this is why I love soils, because it brings together biology, geology, physics, chemistry, water, all in one place. Yeah, I love it. Also, are you guys going to see the Necromass show later? <laughs> I know. <laughs> that sounds like a metal band. <laughs> to nerd out more about these concepts, I would suggest looking up MAUM and POM, which stand for Mineral Associated Organic Matter and Particulate Organic Matter, respectively. I have a friend who has been working in Francesca's lab and researching these topics. It's very fascinating stuff and important to carbon and nutrient cycling. She mentioned to me that while these processes can take place, neither is necessarily what happens in soils when organic matter breaks down and microbes die. As usual, more research is necessary to understand these processes fully. So your background is in soil ecology. Could you define what soil ecology really is and how that differs from other disciplines in the soil world? Yeah, you bet. So within soil science, there's lots of different flavors, right? And 
Some people focus on the physics of soils. Some people focus on the biology or the chemistry. An ecologist is someone who really focuses on how all those different components interact with each other. So it's a systems framework. And I can't help think in that framework. Every time I think about anything in soils, I'm thinking about how all those different components are interacting. So it's really a mindset that I apply to whatever I'm doing. Like an orchestra conductor. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) What are some of the environmental stressors that can exist for like these microbes and soils and how can it affect how climate change is going to affect our ability to function properly? Yeah. Microbes face a lot of environmental stress and living in the soil is not always an easy way to make a living. In most soils, the soil is constantly cycling between being wet and dry. And for a microbe, that's a big deal because a microbe has to actively adjust its physiology to deal with those different conditions. And when you're constantly adjusting your physiology, you have to use a lot of energy to do that. So microbial life is all about dealing with stress. It might be nutrient limitation, water limitation, freezing, thawing. All those things are pretty physiologically intense to deal with. We were talking before the podcast about how fortunate we are to have heat, right? (laughs) And yes, it snowed today and we have seasons, but mostly we live in a narrow range of conditions that are comfortable. For a microbe, that's not true. Yeah, um, (laughs) they sleep outside. (laughs) Yeah, so every time the environment changes, it creates stress because you have to adjust. Yeah. How are microbes adjusting to the fluctuations in climate? Well, you asked about how climate change is impacting it. So climate change increases the variability within systems, right? You get more floods, more droughts at a macro scale. And then as a little tiny microbial scale, that means you're feeling more of those stresses, right? And so microbes have adapted all kinds of cool ways to deal with that. They can go dormant during periods of stress. Then they can kind of spring back to life. They can produce all kinds of new compounds to deal with the osmotic stress, or they can die. and then they might sporulate and then come back their offspring, essentially. There are certain bacteria, too. Their biomass goes into kind of adding to the soil structure, if you will, or to the overall health and fertility of the system. Right. Whenever a microbe dies, that's actually a good thing for soil health because it creates new soil organic matter. An angel gets its wings. (laughs) Soil gets an aggregate. (laughs) There you go. That's better. So when did you find out that you wanted to study soils? Were you always kind of an ecology nerd growing up? No, I would have never predicted (laughs) the turns that my career took. It's pretty simple. When I went to college, I didn't know what I wanted to do. Took a geology class and I really liked it. I liked thinking about the puzzle of how the earth was formed. That really got me. You've been talking to Jimmy Belito, haven't you? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, he appreciates the mystery of trying to piece things together as well. But I also realized at that time, my perception was, hey, most of the careers in geology are in oil or mining, and that wasn't my interest. I wanted to do something that was relevant to the environmental challenges of today. And I found soils because soil is where the geology of the earth meets the living biotic component of the earth. So I started doing research on soils when I was in college. I went to a small college and we didn't have a soil scientist there. So I worked with the closest thing I could find, a great plant ecologist. And we kind of hacked our way into soil ecology and found some people that could help us along the way. But it was great. From the start, I I was hooked. I really loved it. What were you studying in college? Where was that kind of interim between plant ecology and soils? I'm just interested. So I went to college at Franklin Marshall College in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. And in that region, there's this narrow strip of rocks that came from the ocean floor and they were pushed up onto the land. And the special kind of rock called serpentinite. 
So you get these unique ecosystems called serpentine barrens. So I dug into these serpentine barrens because I wanted to learn a little bit more. Due to their stability at high temperatures, there are many minerals found in serpentine rock, such as nickel, magnesium, and chromium. These minerals may be toxic to plants, and thus serpentine creates an unfavorable environment for many common plant species. On the other hand, these unique landscapes can support unusual and rare plant species that have evolved to survive in these conditions. Rare animals, particularly butterflies and moths, around these habitats include species like the dusty skipper, the cobweb skipper, and the juniper hair streak, all of which are endemic to these particular areas. The grasslands, pitch pine trees, and scrub habitat that make up the serpentine barrens are mosaics that historically relied on fire and grazing to remain open. The main threat to these plant groups, besides obviously development, which has destroyed an astronomical amount of natural ecosystems, is the succession to woody vegetation, aka trees and shrubs. Many of these rare species found in the barrens, which have evolved in more open environments, may see a decrease in population as a result of light restrictions brought in by an increasingly dense tree canopy. And they don't look like the surrounding landscape. They look like Mediterranean savannas. And that's largely because of the unique chemistry in the rocks that then gives you unique soil. But those ecosystems had been historically maintained by Native Americans that induced fire on those landscapes. And that helped keep that landscape in that particular savanna-like system. In the absence of that disturbance, over time, those systems started to look more like the pine forests that surrounded them. And so you had this process by which slowly over time, the pine trees would come in and they would start changing the soil. And then you'd lose that uniqueness of the system. As I was studying how at the individual tree level, when you had these new trees come in, they started changing the soil underneath them. And so I would measure how the soil properties changed as you went deeper in the soil or further away from each one of these Hmm. individual trees. It's like an archaeological dig right. going back in time. That's really cool. Do you know the purpose of them burning and then keeping them in like that kind of savanna-like landscape? Well, in general, Native Americans did a lot of active management and they actively managed the landscape for food and for wildlife. So I think that was part of the story on the East Coast. I don't know specifically about those sites. Indeed, I was able to do some more digging on this topic. And as usual, it's too extensive to go into any great detail here. However, I will indulge a little because indigenous land management is a subject that's been of great interest to me recently. It seems fascinating and a bit obvious to me that indigenous peoples had efficient methods of management before European settlers arrived. But for some reason, it seems to be a revelation and even a point of contention to some in the scientific community. So apparently this area that Matt is talking about is one of the last remnants of grassland of its kind on the East Coast. According to the Nature Conservancy, the Native Americans who lived there originally maintained the area as a grassland to attract grazers for hunting purposes. It used to stretch from present-day New York across central Maryland and south to Alabama, and consisted of drier, cactus-like grassy areas and oak savannas maintained by human-induced fire and grazing by white-tailed deer, elk, and other wildlife. This area was also said to contain greater biodiversity in wildlife and plant life due to the frequent fires which created microclimates and habitats for wildlife. In a separate account on soldiersdelight.org, a website outlining the history of a similar landscape just outside of Baltimore called Soldiers Delight Serpentine Wildlands, the indigenous peoples there engaged in fire hunting, a practice during which the landscape was set ablaze at night and the fleeing animals were killed. 
The area is probably dubbed a quote-unquote barren due to its lack of timber and had little to do with the fertility of the soil, though, as mentioned, it would have supported very specific communities at the time of its discovery by white settlers. It also must have stood out against the surrounding forested landscape. Summaries of accounts by white settlers paint a picture of a vast open area about 9 to 20 miles across that stretched endlessly northeast and southwest along the mountains and curved around the Chesapeake Bay in this area specifically anyway. Historically, it's thought to have been created during the end of the Pleistocene when massive glaciers existed just to the north of the area, and it was dominated by open conifer forests consisting of firs and white pine. Based on knowledge of the growth and spread of prairie and savanna in the Midwest, the serpentine oak savanna ecosystem may be thousands of years old. The Middle Holocene's warm and dry phases led to significant prairie and savanna migration and expansion, including an eastward migration from the Midwest that augmented the local flora already present. This could have also been facilitated by indigenous peoples living in the Midwest at the time. Serpentine could have been colonized by plants that could survive in soils high in magnesium and low in calcium, including Indian grass, post oak, and tiny and big blue stem grasses. So I went down a little rabbit hole while researching, which I have to say is one of my favorite parts of making this podcast. And did you know that pecan is a word that stems from indigenous culture? Pecans or pecans are native to the U.S. and their name ultimately goes back to an Algonquin word, pecan, but we got the name through French explorers who called it pecan, stress on the second syllable. It's been switching back and forth ever since. The main thing people disagree on is which syllable to stress. You got the pecan and you got the pecan. This can be traced back to a problem that's plagued English for a long time. English, at its historical core, is an old Germanic language that always puts stress on the first syllable in a two-syllable noun. The oldest English words, the ones that have been part of the language since before the Romance language-speaking people arrived, follow this pattern, like mother, father, water, meadow, apple. It's still the case that a high percentage of English words have first-syllable stress. But starting with the Norman invasion of 1066, the English took a giant wave of French influence, and French has a second-syllable stress. Many, many of the earliest borrowings adjusted to the English stress pattern, like montagne, which means mountain, jardin, which means garden, cité, which means city. But later words in English often didn't adjust like advice, machine, homage, divorce, and so on. This leads to a tension between the borrowed stress pattern and the native pattern that occasionally breaks through in dialect differences. As for the vowel issues, they follow from the stress confusion. Vowels can take on different forms depending on syllable stress, and when combined with the general regional variation in vowels, you can get all kinds of combinations. The interesting thing is that, according to this, you would expect to hear pecan in the south and pecan in the north, which isn't the case. Many say it's not a north-south split, however, but it has something to do with the Appalachian Mountains. Even so, there's a lot of variation within the mapping region. Kathleen Purvis, who wrote a book on pecans, tells the story of how her parents had a pecan mixed marriage. He was from a small town in South Georgia and she was from the mighty city in Atlanta. As a child, she couldn't say the word without being corrected. If she said pecan, her father would accuse her of sounding snobby. And if she said pecan, her mother would sniff pecan. That's something you put under your bed. 
The author attributes the pecan split to not a general regional difference, but to an urban versus rural one. Basically, if you want to sound more country, you'd say pecan. And if you want to sound a little bit more urban, you say pecan. How do you say pecan? Can you tell us a bit about Syngenta and how'd you get involved there and what's your role now? Well, after 16 years at Colorado State University and what I'd consider kind of a full academic career, one day I got an email from a recruiter and they were seeing if I was interested in this position with Syngenta, which is the largest ag tech company in the world. And it had this really catchy title of chief soil scientist. And it was really striking. And I knew right away that this is a really special kind of once in a lifetime opportunity to take what I had done and take soil science and then work within an organization that has a really strong impact on agriculture around the world, a science-based innovation organization, and help bring soil science to a really high level within that organization and really embed soils in everything that they do. You know, even though I loved academia and I loved what I was doing, I had to take that opportunity. It was just the opportunity to make an impact at the global scale was really exciting. And I guess I was ready for a new adventure. Sounds like once in a lifetime, honestly. That's awesome. Yeah. I've never come across someone with this awesome title of chief soil scientist. (laughs) And I don't know if I will again. So can you walk us through a day as a chief soil scientist? What does that look like for you? Good question. And I'll say it's going to look a lot different a year from now than it does now. I'm about six months into the role. And to literally answer that question, what my day looks like typically is Zoom meetings with people around the world, internal to Syngenta and external, that are doing amazing work. And what's fun is my conversations range from nerdy science stuff to thinking about big business strategy. And I love that. I'm also an entrepreneur. I've had some, you know, business experience and interest. But to me, that's where you find where those align. That's where the big change happens. So all day long, I'm having these really interesting conversations and thinking about, you know, how do we take soil science and turn it into products or practices for growers that can help them be more successful and have a benefit to the environment? What are some of the strategies that Syngenta is promoting as far as trying to get soil science out to producers and customers? Yeah, so Syngenta is a company that has people all around the world and we sell seeds and crop protection products and digital services around the world. And so we're known as one of the leading innovation companies in the space. So when Syngenta makes a statement that we are going to elevate soil health as a really important part of what we do, that signals to growers that, hey, soil really is important and companies like Syngenta are going to help find ways for growers to manage their soils in a way that provides the outcomes that they're looking for, right? Profitability, productivity. And Syngenta recognizes that agriculture is one of the leading contributors to climate change. And at the same time, climate change is one of the biggest threats to food security around the globe. We want to be leading in providing solutions to growers to address that dual challenge. It's just critical for the world. It's critical for the sustainability of the company. And so a lot of what I do is really thinking about how do we help growers transition to practices that improve soil health and meet all those other challenges at the same time. So like you've mentioned, talking to all these different professions and for people who are listening, probably don't know, ecotone is one environment changes drastically and goes into another, like a forest into like a grassland or something like that. And using this kind of model mindset with professions and people and what they do and how their lives are 
very vastly different, I'm sure, some of the people you talk to. That's apparently where big change happens in the actual landscape ecotone. I guess there's more biodiversity in these kinds of environments. And so from what I understand, this is also where a lot of big change happens with people as well and ideas and where two vastly different ideas and realms come together. One of the most exciting things about my new role and moving into Syngenta is it's a global organization. And when I say that, it means we don't just sell products around the world. We have research and development around the world. And that's because, as we talked about, agriculture is all local. You can't just make something in one place. You can't make a seed in one place that's going to work everywhere. So that's one of the coolest things about my job is really growing to understand the connections between people all around the world, between our food system and how things like policies that we make here impact things that happen in Brazil and in China and all around the world. It's all connected. Of course, I knew that, but I didn't have that visceral understanding and didn't get to see it with my own eyes in the same way that I do now. Based in Basel, Switzerland, Syngenta was formed in 2000 by the merger of Norvadis Agribusiness and Zeneca Agrochemicals. In 2004, Syngenta Seeds purchased Garst, the North American corn and soybean business of Advanta, as well as Golden Harvest Seeds. Now, Syngenta is the largest agribusiness company in the world, one of the largest manufacturers of agrochemicals, the third largest owner of plant biotechnology patents, and the third largest seed supplier. They employ 53,000 people across more than 100 countries, and they say they strive every day to transform agriculture through tailor-made solutions for farmers. You mentioned before some of your entrepreneurial pursuits, and you had started a company a while back that produced a product that benefited producers. Do you mind giving us a little rundown on your company and what you made? Back around 2014, I was at a point where I made a conscious decision that I wanted to move a little bit away from purely basic research and do some work that was more applied. So I've been for years studying how microbes in the soil influence the plants and their ecosystems and and cycle nutrients. And I wanted to try to take that knowledge and do something. And so along with Colin Bell, who was a research scientist, worked closely with me, we came up with a concept by which we could develop microbes that make phosphorus more available to plants, right? Because we already knew that the availability of that key nutrient, phosphorus, was really determined by the biology in the soil. It's kind of like a bottleneck too, isn't it, in terms of nutrient? Yeah. A lot of phosphorus that we add as fertilizer gets locked away because it's chemically bound to soils in a way that's not available to plants, but microbes can unlock it. And by adding the right kind of microbe, you can accelerate that process, make those nutrients more available to plants. So I wanted to explain a little bit the term phosphorus bottleneck. The term peak phosphorus, which refers to the period where humankind reaches its maximum pace of global phosphorus production, meaning that we have only a finite amount of phosphorus to extract. When the U.S. Geological Survey and other institutions improved their estimates of the world's available phosphorus, The discussion about whether phosphorus shortages would be impending around 2010 was largely put to rest. However, the precise reserve amounts and potential effects of greater phosphate use on future generations are undetermined. This is significant because a large portion of inorganic fertilizers contain rock phosphate, and the current systems are dependent on these fertilizers to maintain food security. 
In 2021, the USGS estimated that economically extractable phosphate rock reserves are about 71 billion tons. And with our current mining production assuming zero growth, these reserves would last for 260 years. Is that a lot of time or too little time? We're not really sure. Phosphorus can be transferred from the soil from one location to another as food as it's being transported across the world, and it takes the phosphorus with it. Once consumed in the form of food, it ends up in the local environment, usually in the case of open defecation, which is obviously still a widespread practice, or in rivers or the ocean via sewage systems or by agricultural runoff. One potential solution to the shortage of phosphate is greater recycling of human and animal waste back into the environment via methods like utilizing sewage sludge. And if you want to learn more about sludge, check out our episode with Dr. Jim Ippolito. Also, what's an episode of Soylent Green without a fun fact about poop? The Incas, prior to the arrival of the Spaniards, used guano as fertilizer In the early 1800s, Alexander von Humboldt introduced guano as a source of agricultural fertilizer to Europe after having discovered it on islands off the coast of South America. It has been reported that at the time of its discovery, the guano on some islands was over 30 meters deep. The guano had previously been used by the Mocha people as a source of fertilizer by mining it and transporting it back to Peru by boat. International commerce in guano didn't start until after 1840. However, by the start of the 20th century, guano had been nearly completely depleted and was eventually overtaken with the discovery of methods of producing superphosphate. So we had this idea and it really, we had a different approach than other people had taken because we had this ecological perspective. And so we started isolating different combinations of microbes from soils. And really within a short period of time, we had a prototype and we started putting it on plants. And Instantly, we knew we had something. It was working. And you could see it with your own eyes. You could see the plants are greener and and growing better. And and then you can measure the yields. And so then what? At that point in an Erlenmeyer flask in the lab, that seemed to benefit plants. So we went on this crazy entrepreneurial adventure of figuring out how you take something from the lab and get it into the hands of growers and looking for that product market fit. So within a really short period of time, we found that product market fit and we decided rather than license this technology out to someone else, that we were going to take it and start a company. So we started a company called Grosentia. Those microbes in that flask quickly became a product called Mammoth P. And Mammoth P been really commercially successful. So it's been a great adventure and really a lot of critical learnings for me about understanding the joy in creating something that people can use and really appreciate and really thinking differently about understanding a customer problem, right? At the end of the day, it's all about understanding the pain points of your customer, in this case, farmers and growers, and then figuring out how to solve those problems, those pain points. Are there any other customer market gaps that you can predict or you see currently that need to be filled? Oh, endless. I mean, farmers have endless amounts of challenges. And, you know, sometimes it's about listening so carefully that you can understand the challenges that they've become so accustomed to that they don't even realize they have. And the whole industry is there to help try to find ways to make growing more efficient and more productive. So that's what we do day in and day out in business. But understanding the customer is the number one most important thing. Can you give us an example of some of those problems that they have that don't realize that it's an issue? 
Well, you know, I think a lot of times growers are experiencing yield loss that they don't even recognize or they've become used to. They might have parts of their field that just aren't as productive and you accept that. But science can help figure out what sometimes there are diseases there that are at a low enough level that you don't realize. And using DNA-based tests of soils, we can uncover those and then help farmers come up with a plan to address that. Also, I just wanted to ask about how you at Grocentia started. It was kind of through service that CSU offers, is that right? Well, one of the things we did is we enrolled in a program offered by the National Science Foundation called Innovation Core. And Innovation Core, it's a lean startup business model, which is essentially evidence-based entrepreneurship. It's applying the scientific method to exploring and testing business models, meaning that you come in and you figure out what your hypotheses are, and you test those hypotheses in the quickest, cheapest way possible so that you don't spend years building something and a lot of money and then put it in a customer's hands and find out you actually weren't solving the problem or they're not willing to pay for it. And as a scientist, that made so much sense to me, and I loved it. I loved talking to customers and thinking through business opportunities in that structured way. There was like a certain time restraint you had on that, right? To do that business development? That particular program, I believe, was 10 weeks. And in that 10 weeks, we had to, it was 10 weeks, we had to talk to over 100 customers or potential channel partners, distributors. So it was a wild ride. Crash course. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So, what advice would you give to someone who thinks that they have a really novel idea that could really help many people out and want to start their own business? Yeah. I love trying to help people think through that. And the way that you phrase that, so someone who has a solution, that's a great start because a lot of times people have a technology and then they go looking for the solution, Mm -hmm. right? Or they just think they have something that's really cool and, and therefore they have a business. It's really about how well are you solving a pain point? So that's the first thing is go talk to customers, understand how they're solving that problem today, validate that it's really a pain point for them and that's something they're willing to pay for a solution. But then you have to really understand how they might use it like, and how they make decisions, what their risk tolerance is, what their openness to new ideas. And then there's a million other things like, what's the regulatory landscape? Do you have to get this mm-hmm. past regulators in order to get into a customer's hands? You know, How are you going to produce it? How are you going to sell it? Who would be your competition? I think what many people are surprised about is that often the technology and the science is the easy part. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and sometimes it's not. Technology doesn't have to be incredibly complex. Sometimes simple solutions are the best. Yeah, identifying the problem might be the easy part, but then how to jump through all the hoops to actually get to a physical product or service is the tough part. You bet. Do you have a favorite microorganism? (laughs) One of the groups of organisms that is endlessly fascinating and important are buscular mycorrhizal fungi. So these are fungi that form direct associations with plant roots, and the plant gives them carbon and they give the plant nutrients and water. And it's, you know, this symbiotic relationship that is so important in so many systems. And when you can harness it in agricultural systems, it helps provide resilience and efficiency and productivity of those systems. And they also transport nutrients, like if they make association with one plant, but then there's like a big distance between it and another one. But if there's like that hyphae fungal network continued, they can say, okay, this one needs resources over here. This one needs resources over there. Yeah. So there's this concept called the wood wide web, which kind of articulates this highly connected network. And actually, it's a little controversial, right? And there was, I think, an article in one of the major papers recently that talked about this. 
So it's kind of cool to see how science plays out. And, you know, it's a really exciting concept. And, and now some people are questioning whether it's as ubiquitous or really as true as some people have portrayed. So they don't think that there's that much fungal hyphae or like networks throughout the world? No, I think there certainly are fungal hyphae and networks in most natural ecosystems. I think the scientific questions are around the degree to which they're really communicating with each other or cooperating versus competing. Mm. Yeah, I guess we did talk a little bit about that in Kelly's episode. (laughs) And some of the regenerative practices we mentioned before, like no-till and using cover crops is kind of protecting that hyphae network, right? Because if you till up your soil or you leave your ground fallow, that symbiotic connection is kind of dying off between the plant and the fungal hyphae. Yeah, that's absolutely right. Anything you do that disturbs the soil will mess up the biodiversity of the soil. And in particular, fungi are susceptible because those hyphae are literally like little threads in the soil. And when you till, you physically disrupt them. So every time you disturb your soil, you kind of reset the biodiversity in a way. And then when you add things like cover crops, you're really just pumping microbial food into the soil. Every minute that the plant is photosynthesizing, it's taking carbon out of the atmosphere and releasing it into the soil, and that's feeding the microbes. So when you talk about regenerative practices, we really understand the scientific principles and the reasons why these are so beneficial. So I love thinking about it from the perspective of a microbe and what is a microbe experience in the soil when you till or what is (laughs) Yeah, really scary, right? Talk about stress. Freaking out. (laughs) What is in the future for you, you think, professionally? What do you think is on the horizon? Well, I've taken on this new role at Syngenta and I have a huge opportunity ahead of me. So I'm just barely getting started. And, you know, I think that's going to provide endless challenges and opportunities for the, probably the rest of my career. I think the opportunity to build a soil competency and excellence within a big company like Syngenta doesn't happen overnight, and it's going to take a while to really build that up, although we're moving as fast as we can and investing a lot and moving with ambition. But agriculture is not, you can't short circuit the development cycle in agriculture. So right. getting a product or service into the hands of a customer takes time. We're not talking about software here. So as fast as I like to move, I also have to be realistic about the need to develop things in a way and go through all the development cycles so that we have something that really works and delivers value. Especially when you're trying to make a global change and there's so many different needs to be met. That takes a lot of time to develop. Yeah. And you have a lot of different barriers to adoption of practices that involve people and people making decisions and policy. And all of those things take time. Thanks, Matt. And thanks for helping us get started. It's really made our lives much more interesting. (laughs) And anytime you want to come back, you're welcome. Yeah, please do. I appreciate your time and for you coming in here. This has been awesome, really illuminating. I appreciate it so much. And I'm just psyched to see your success and this new way of bringing science to people around the world. It's awesome. Thank Thank you you. so much. (laughs) 